proper intro thing because we hadn't worked that out yet. Hey everyone! <laughs> Hello! Hey! Welcome, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm there's, Andy Wood. There's Andy, uh, my not only partner in Probably Science, but the creator and director of the Bridgetown Comedy Festival where we currently are. Thank you! Thank you, all of you, for making it. Uh, yeah, for the listeners at home, this is the last day of the tenth year of this thing, which is pretty nuts. And um, let's we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we might. The microphone might be booming a tiny bit. Is it? Uh, coming back. A little to you? feeding back a tiny bit. Is anyone getting a little feedback? Or are we Sounds okay? Good to me. All right then. I'll start worrying. Okay. Why am I always worrying? I'm. We're also weirdly awkwardly on the end here. We should have thought this through. We. I'm gonna... We always end up doing it, I think. We, we yeah. sort of bookend the whole thing and then squeeze people in between us. Uh, so what have been the highlights of your weekend so far, Matt? Um, well, I came, in, I came in relatively late this time like because I, I, I got a writing thing, so I wasn't able to come on the Thursday like I normally do. So I, I arrived on a delayed uh, Friday evening flight and ran straight to two gigs uh, and then ran straight to the bar. And <laughs> yesterday was a problem. So... <laughs> I, I, I thought I thought I don't know whose idea that cold coffee in a can stuff is, but that's like I thought that would fix me, and it was bad. Uh, like I then had to I wasn't going to drink during the day. I had to drink to bring myself back down to something vaguely approaching level. Oh God, it's all yeah. It's just <laughs> I was just like ah. We we did the trivia night. We did or trivia day. I guess it was. It was like a trivia that was organised by the festival. And I just spent the whole time like, ah, questions. Like, it was, it was, it, it was excessive. But um, I tell you, my favorite thing so far, my favorite show was um, uh, Whitney Street's Dance Off, Rants Off. Oh, that's a great show. You want to or Rants Off, Dance Off, which I don't know which way around the rants and the dance are. It doesn't work in my accent either. Like, it doesn't rhyme <laughs> if you're English. It's definitely an American title because it's like Rants Off, Dance Off. Like, it just... <laughs> That's still pretty close. Rants, rants, rants. So the ranters... Uh, ranters, for those uh, <laughs> who still have trouble with this one. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I was one of the judges, uh, and people have to do a rant on... They, they either... It's in two halves. They either choose their rant subject, but then get surprised by the music they have to dance to, or they are given their rant topic, but they choose their music, uh, and they basically have to do a rant about something... And then a dance, and then we get to judge it, which I felt like like I should. In, I'm in no position to judge anyone's dancing ability. That that's a fraudulent position, but it was a lot of fun. That was great. Well, I thought you were going to tell me about a particular person. Who were some of the performers on that one? Well, uh, well, for starters, um, Maggie May was upside down twerking on the backdrop of the Doug Fur. <laughs> Which is remarkable, because I didn't even think that backdrop was solid in any way. Like, I, I thought she was going to go straight through it, but she just went for it, and that was ridiculous. And her rant? Uh, her rant was about everything. Like, she went for a full-on, like, everything that's ever pissed me off, and, like, fair play to her. Uh, then Andy Erickson risked her, her life. <laughs> she has Marfan syndrome and isn't able to have a heartbeat above a certain number, otherwise she dies. So, like, that was... 
It's a reverse crank. That, yeah, that, well, that crank was... Crank three, low voltage. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that, was a, that was a remarkable, like, fucking fair play for doing that show that she shouldn't have done. Uh, but yeah, it was excellent. Every, everyone was great. Everyone, it, that was a very fun show. I'm very happy to have done that, nice. to have been a part of that. What were your highlights, Andy? My highlight, Matt, happens to involve our first guest. Uh, yesterday at Revolution Hall, we were lucky enough to get together the three new castaways of the Satellite of Love, Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Return. We had... Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it's crazy that the show came back thanks to this huge Kickstarter campaign, one of the biggest ever, and even crazier that, that the cast now consists of, like, friends. comedy friends of ours. <laughs> All people who've been at the festival people before. People who've done Bridgetown before, yeah. Um, and last night we had, we had with us Jonah Ray, who plays Jonah Heston, Baron Vaughn, who plays Tom Servo, and our first guest, the new voice of Crow, give it up for Hampton Yunts, everybody. Hampton Yunts. <laughs> Crow T. Robot himself. Hey, Hampton. Hey. Hello. Us. <laughs> Hi. This is also... You told me to meet you for brunch. This is what I was... I was tricked. This is not only um, uh, a great panel for Science Talk, but also a sort of writer's room reunion from MTV's Ridiculousness. <laughs> which for some, I was like hoping you'd talk about For that. some reason, all three of us wrote oh, jokes for a 43-year-old skateboarder to say when people... <laughs> When people get Scrooge hit in the nuts. kickflip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some of you might be surprised to know, like that uh, ridiculousness. The TV show has writers. <laughs> but yeah, Al my balls has writers. <laughs> <laughs> but we we brought a lot of heat to the game. It was super fun to work. It I was mean, really together. fun. It was just like, and we were, you know, cracking everybody up in the writers' room, and we're like, none of this is going to see the light of day. Like, yeah, nothing here incredibly is stressful for such a show that you're like, it's literally, come on, guys, like, who cares? Yeah. It's, who cares? Have you guys seen? Have you guys seen ridiculousness? It's, just, it's, fl- it's fluff, you know. But they, they know that, but then yet they stress to the right. to the I, millisecond I, about I footage. I think it's MTV's top rated show, and yeah. I think Rob just shows I up found 20 this minutes out. before. It, I found this out. It's the number one show in Trump's America. <laughs> It's like us and Duck Dynasty reunions. <laughs> and I'm like, I did it. No, I don't know. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I would say MST3K is probably a better use of your skill set, maybe, than... Yeah, it's the most fun I've ever had at a job, for sure. Does it feel a little bit like being uh, that, that guy in the Mark Wahlberg rock star movie? Or, or, or the... Boogie Nights? <laughs> yeah. Or the guy who I'm came in... I'm a star, in... I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. <laughs> The karaoke. Oh, yeah. the for you, karaoke for those of you who haven't seen the new rebooted uh, Mystery Science, it is all about porn. <laughs> Everyone's naked. But uh, uh, Rockstar is an equally disturbing Mark Wahlberg yeah, movie. Yeah. Or maybe it's like the guy who got hired to replace Steve Perry because he was like an amazing karaoke singer, right? I mean, you've been a longtime fan of MST3K. My favorite move that Mark Wahlberg's doing now is he just is like, I'm, a, I'm that hero. <laughs> he just decides to be a new hero. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm on an oil rig. <laughs> now I'm a cop. Now I'm a firefighter. <laughs> It's just going to be all like historical fiction, like things he would have prevented if he'd been there. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much saved everybody. <laughs> and uh, he's surprisingly more, more inside uh, entertainment talk. He was on the MTV Movie Awards, which I worked on for a week. Uh, has zero sense of humor about himself. Yeah. <laughs> well, not surprisingly, Mark Wahlberg, no jokes at his expense. No jokes playing to how he's like cocky and alpha. Like, well, what else do you have but that? 
And he hates whenever someone quotes that SNL sketch, that say hello to your mother for me. Like if someone tries to like write that joke for him to do, he won't do it. But if it's not written down, it's all he'll do. So he ended up going up to the podium. Uh, 2015 MTV Movie Awards, you can watch it. Doesn't say any jokes in the prompter, just makes lewd comments about his co-presenter and then says, say hello to your mother for me. <laughs> I don't know, he's a little funny when he said uh, he could have prevented 9-11. <laughs> I laughed when he said that. I, like, well, I would have paid to not, see that movie. Not even just United 93, all the planes. He <laughs> all the planes. All I would have hijacked the plane myself and yeah. flown to save the other plane. <laughs> to be fair to him, uh, since the original one, how many 9-11s have there been? Man, wow. I salute you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Like keeping us safe. Oh. <laughs> I'm a sniper now. <laughs> Everything's like I'm a firefighter. I'm a sniper. You're pretty. I'm pretty sure that's exactly how the film gets pitched as well. And then they're like, just, <laughs> just all right. Mark's decided now. Someone write it. Yeah, I picked up a magazine I hadn't seen before, and now I want to be a race car driver. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Jim. Uh, Mark wants to be a race car driver. Can you write that up for us? All right. Okay. Thanks. Bye. He's like a Make-A-Wish kid, but instead of having cancer, he just took some guy's eye out when he was 16. <laughs> It's true, you guys. He guys, put someone's just... eye out in, like, I think a, yeah. a racially motivated hate crime. And now yeah. he's like a box office superstar. That's Boston, baby. That's Boston. <laughs> That's Southie. But That's I hear it here, and I don't know whether this is true. So, like, this, like, this is alleged. Like, so, don't, like, don't go suing us or anything. But I did hear that that eye was plotting to do another 9 11. Oh, okay. That's what it was. <laughs> That's... Oh, <Sorry>. again. <laughs> From sea that was like <laughs> he came from the future in like one of those Hitler scenarios. <laughs> the time machine is like you must go back and take out this eye. Like in the in the alternate timeline, there's just like this big eye on every poster around. <laughs> <laughs> Obey the eye. And the dilemma he had getting in that time machine, he's like, I'm gonna be a hero. No one's gonna fucking know it. No one's ever gonna know how I saved him. Yeah. All right, check it out. It's basically the butterfly effect, but this time I'm the butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm all like, tough. I'm like a tough butterfly. Like a fucking wicked. It's more like a moth. I'm or like something. a butterfly who lifts. <laughs> Super swole butterfly. He knows about his body. Yeah. No legs though. I'll, I'll up a body with this butterfly. <laughs> it's never leg day for fly. He just tears the flowers apart. <laughs> anyway, this is the dumbest riff. The whole point of this was to ask you. Oh yeah, how, how has it been being on this fucking re- revitalizing this classic show, Mystery so, Science Theater? It's been so great, man. Yeah. You get to just do this. <laughs> then someone's like, here's a little bit of money. Do you watch uh, the movie yourself the first time and like have your own script and come to a meeting or what do you do? Yeah, well, there's there's several ways we've attacked different like the movies because it's kind of a long process. Yeah. So, you know, initially we were, were we were getting together to like just do a private screening stuff, but it's like it's a little hard with schedule. Plus, like technology has really gotten great. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's really risen to the occasion of like. It's 20 years later, so we all have laptops and we could just watch stuff. And there's this program that they developed for us to be able to, like, catalog all the jokes and stuff. It has a time code when you wrote them. So we can get together, and then we can also, like, um, just do it ourselves. It's like homework, you know, in a sense. And then there's, like, several, like, parts of the process. That's just, like, the first part where it's just, like, throw out as many jokes as possible. And then it's, like, like touching up the jokes and refining stuff and, like... Pretty much down to like the very last minute, we're like switching lines, changing them. Like, 
doing that. Awesome, awesome. How many of you guys in the audience have uh, watched the whole first, the whole new season of Mr. <laughs> Science Theater? Have they gotten through it yet? That's a lot of hours of footage. Like, that's it's, a big ask. It's been two weeks it's and it's ask. like uh, 20 hours of programming, <laughs> but I'm halfway through and it's amazing. And the movies this time around are bonkers. I mean, they always are, but like, I can't believe I hadn't heard of Star Crash, which was a 1978 direct ripoff of Star yeah. Wars. We went to <laughs> make a, a sexy Star Wars. <laughs> hey, why, why does Princess Leia not have sex with Chewbacca? <laughs> it's sexy. It's, like, it's literally like just an Italian pervert got a hold of Star Wars. <laughs> just okay, see. Um, it's great. And it, all, it has such a, like, a logic to it that just makes no sense. There's like a king of space. <laughs> The royal family of space. <laughs> is that Christopher Plummer that or the? Uh, is that the Italian guy or Christopher Plummer? I forgot I, which one he I is. I think that's Christopher Plummer, who's never, who's a ghost in every scene. Like I think he just did everything in the sound studio in like six hours for that whole movie and just got his check. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Should we bring our, our scientists? Yes, we up? should. Let's do it. I believe I could be wrong about this, but I think this is our first anthropologist episode. I don't think we've had anthropologists sure? on before. Because yeah, yeah. I, I put out a general call, uh, like, hey, who knows scientists in Portland, to a few friends of mine, and one of them came back and went, well, my friend Betsy is the uh, assistant professor of anthropology at Reed, which is totally just around here. Uh, so I messaged her, and then she said, I'm up for it. And then she said, you know, my husband's also an anthropologist. So I thought, fuck, we'll get, a, like, a, like anthropology power couple. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, please welcome onto this stage, uh, pr- first, Professor Betsy Breda, and also Brian Horn as well. There's some knowledge in this group. <laughs> they do move in herds. You guys go check out all the rest of the cool island. I'm going to stay here and look at this shit. <laughs> it's a little girl. movie called Jurassic Park, guys. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, so you're at Reed. I am. Okay, what is it like to, to hate freedom? Uh, <laughs> isn't it like the most countercultural university in the country? Like the most iconoclastic... There's no grades, right? As a scientist, I'd have to you know, conduct a study in order to decide whether it's <laughs> the most iconoclastic. <laughs> but uh, it is pretty iconic. They, they do get grades. They oh, they do? They just don't okay. see them. <laughs> Wait, well, how does it? <laughs> huh. It's basically short it's very, it's grades. science, right? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> <laughs> that you, you, so, so they have don't to, exist unless you, unless they see them. Exactly. Unless you see them. Right. They, they only it's come beautiful. into existence once they're seen by the students, actually. <laughs> the Schrodinger cat grade sort of thing. What's <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, so bef- okay, before, uh, you, you specialize in medical anthropology, mm-hmm. but then also specifically, like, your subject involves Africa and HIV. So before we get into the really fun stuff, let's, uh, <laughs> before we get into, like, the big chuckles, uh, let's, can we just start with, like, okay, what is medical anthropology and what do you do? Because you're currently teach you're also teaching the first year introduction course right now, so, like... Explain, can you explain it to us like we're substantially less able than the first-year students? Uh, probably depends on how high the first-year students are at that point in time. So, generally speaking, anthropology is the study of humans from the point of view of society or culture. Okay. So not psychology. Like if I were a psychologist, I'd be interested in your mind. Right. Right. Uh, if I were a biologist, I would be interested in you as an organism. Uh-huh. As an anthropologist, I'm interested in you as a member of a collective, 
some kind of social group, some kind of culture that yeah, you share. Yeah, the Kiss Army. Woo! Right? <laughs> <laughs> totally somebody dis- somebody's dissertation project. I don't doubt it. <laughs> There must be, because like, that, that is obviously, you know, there are sort of tribal subcultures and stuff, but that, that, those are cultures that form within societies, right? Like fandoms and... So anthropologists can argue till, you know, the day, till, the, till the day ends over what exactly a society or a culture is or what the boundaries around it are. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think... What do you say? Everything. I mean, everything. We study everything, basically. Pretty this. much there's nothing humans can do that we can't study. Wait, is this a rip-off job? <laughs> we just study it all. We just piggyback on everybody else's work and just say, we're tagging along with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, we agree. That's a good point. We, we did that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we look over people's shoulders and call it our own. So wait, when you are studying like a group of people, like say you're going to somewhere... Do you ever do you ever go to places where Westerners haven't particularly been before? And if so, how do you not fuck up that group of people when you're mm. doing that? Mm. You guys want to play last... with my iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> the last book we we've read... brought Twitter to everyone. <laughs> we've just given up and we realize we're going to fuck up everything we do anyway, no matter what. Right. But the last book I taught in intro is actually about an anthropologist who spent time with people who had recently, like, supposedly uncontacted tribes who had recently left the Paraguayan forests. Okay. So there are, I mean, part of his argument is like, look, there are, there are, you know, the, these supposedly uncontacted tribes have had some kind of intermittent contact with colonial Europeans going back three centuries. So, you know, to call them uncontacted, one has to be a little careful, right? Okay, so there but almost isn't such a thing as a completely... You'd, well, his hard part, it's hard to find, and part of his point is that, is that even, if the, even if the history tells you that that might not be the case, there's so much romance around the uncontacted primitive, mm-hmm. right? Right. That people are willing to just throw the history out and ro- sort of have this romantic encounter with the supposed pristine savage. All right, is that just like this? Like, I got there first. Yeah. yeah, I'm the one who did it. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit like um, Jurassic Park with humans, right? right? This kind of fantasy of recreating something, hmm. right? That you can then somehow control. Oh yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but that's like crazy. that's so much more sinister. That's so much more sinister than. It, it it's a pretty sinister book, right? <laughs> um, yeah. They want to just. Uh... Are, are there them. are there uh, like relatively untouched groups of people who like I've I've heard this rumor that uh, whenever there's a big sporting event they have to make you know winning shirts and hats for both teams they don't know who's going to win and then the losing things have to go somewhere and they sometimes go to like developing countries so have you ever come to a tribe where like the Cubs have like twenty pennants <laughs> you know, like the alternate got, universe yeah. where. So there's actually a lot written on sort of on on sort of North American clothing that circulates far from North America. So so long before I was an anthropologist, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo, which is in West Africa, and it's not a very exciting West African country. It was under a dictatorship for decades and decades that the U.S. supported because they were anti-communist, and that was what we did in the 80s, or 70s, 80s, etc. So you're saying, that, you're saying that America hasn't always been the good guys? Well, we take there, care of the baddies, and we're the goodies. As, as far as the dictator was concerned, the U.S. was definitely the good guys, right? But, but, but when people, people in, this is, 
this is you know, fairly rural. I mean, the country at that time had three roads. Uh, Always traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Always. But, but you, but Waze you, was really popular. <laughs> you, you'd see kids walking by in two-pack t-shirts. Right? And this was referred to... So the, the word used for white people generally was yovo. And this kind of clothing was referred to in the market as the dead yovo market. Because, because why would, how is it that this clothing would be here if the, its owners weren't, were actually still alive, right? So, so all of this clothing from dead yovos had somehow made its way to rural West Africa. So some Tupac fan had somehow... The assumption was is that he would be dead. The owner of that shirt was dead. And that somehow dead why, white why, people's why clothing was like accruing. Yeah, exactly, right? Take maybe the shirt just, off my dead back. <laughs> or maybe you just, you know, went off Tupac. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, yeah. yeah. These are all Tupac shirts. <laughs> it's just Tupac. That's all they have. Right, yeah. <laughs> now, you'd see everything. You'd see, do you guys remember that shirt that said something like, Go Club, a godless communist baby seal for Christ or something like that? Okay. No. Does anybody remember this shirt? I can imagine. I, swear, I would see little kids wandering around rural West Africa <laughs> in this shirt, right? Like Coca-Cola and like not even Cubs pennant, but like, you know, Grant High School. Right? Like yeah, I want to really see just a, a person walking around with just like daddy's little slut. <laughs> just like written on his shirt. Just like happy going to work. <laughs> yeah, but it would be like a 40-year-old man. Yeah, absolutely. We're in juicy sweatpants. He's like, got a family. He's just so happy. <laughs> well, yeah, After so- a while, you just had to stop reading the shirts. Like, so like, just forget that you understood English and forget what the shirt said because it would mess up your mind. Uh, so let's dive into this. Let's go into both. Like, we'll take your research first. So what is it you actually do it in the world of medical anthropology? Oh God. What do I do? And what is medical anthropology? Start with what is medical anthropology. So medical anthropology is really interested in health and healing from a cultural perspective. What, what, what do people believe makes them sick? What do they do about things that make them sick? Uh, do you tell somebody? If you, if, you know somebody if you know somebody's diagnosis, do you tell them? Are there circumstances under which you wouldn't tell them? What might telling them do? Um, okay. That's, I mean, that's a big thing. Like, we've talked about that in the past because uh, there's been even changes in the U.S. About, about whether mammograms are recommended at certain ages. Because yeah. sometimes early intervention is dangerous and, like, not knowing is sometimes better. Or, like, prostate problems, it's kind of the same Well, like, way. sometimes people will, older people would quite health or quite naturally die of, die of old age with cancer in their body that they never needed to right. treat because it was progressing. Because yeah. the age at which it would have killed them is after the age at which they would have died anyway. So why... Mm-hmm ruin their last few, in fact, shorten their last few years by giving them chemotherapy to treat something that doesn't need to be treated. Yeah, so there's, uh-huh. a, there's for example, there's an anthropologist named Sharon Kaufman in California who works on end-of-life care in the U.S. And, like, what is it that, you know, because she, she looks at these situations where neither families nor the medical personnel think it's a good idea to prolong a very old person's life with, like, these really intensive, painful, you know, debilitating treatments. But nobody wants to be the person in the room to say, like, I think we should just let them die. Right? right? So, so nobody, right? <laughs> nobody wants to be the asshole there. Nobody, so, so these things keep happening even though nobody, including the patient, wants them to happen. And so the anthropologist is like, if nobody wants this, what is going on? How is this coming to be? And what, what are the conclusions? Like, why is that? Is that- 
it's Trump's fault. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, is, is, is it? Hell yeah. Because <laughs> it, it, it is sort of, it, in, like in the Western medicine, there is firstly this sort of drug. We have this technology, so it seems immoral not to use it. Yes. And we have this, like, the idea that, like, we have to save life at all costs. We've, like, uh, we've sworn an oath to preserve and protect life at all costs. Right, and that means there is, there's almost no circumstances in which not intervening can be the moral option. Right, and yet often, like, you, I've heard it written that generally if you ask a doctor, would they want this particular treatment? Like, once, a doc, once if it was you who were ill, then they would go, no, the second I... If I have this diagnosis, all I'm having is palliative care. All yeah. I'm going to do is make my remaining days as comfortable as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, but there's so much pressure on people either, either because they themselves think that intervention is a good thing or because they don't want to disappoint their families by not, you know, by not acquiescing to it. Right? We're all like, living that. Like, no, no. I'm <laughs> on just going to die. It's okay. <laughs> Deal with it. So... Um, <laughs> So that's the sort of Western attitude to it. Mm-hmm. Is that do you do you encounter different attitudes to it in different countries and different continents? Well, so one of the things I found really interesting, I, I did my field research in Botswana uh-huh. in southern Africa, and Botswana is a, a funny place. They there's also a market there and kind of dead. That guy is like, it sure is. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> uh, I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> Oh, that old Botswana chestnut. (laughs) So it's about the size of Texas, but it's got a population of about 2 million people. So pretty sparsely inhabited. Uh, It was a British protectorate, but the British weren't all that interested in actually living there. They just wanted to keep it away from the Germans. Uh, I'm sure that worked out great for the people who live there. (laughs) That's always something Brits have been very good at doing. Like, we go into a country uh, divided along racial lines... uh, Take all the minerals and it's it, just leave it for the better. You so must the, not keep anything from the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> you must turn over everything. <laughs> so curiously, the diamond deposits were really not uh, accessed until after independence. So Botswana's had mm. one of the fastest growing growing economies wow. in the world since the mid '60s, to the point where, like, I mean. They, they also had something like, they had more than three roads, but they only had about 10 kilometers of road in 1966. And about 30 years later, they were reclassified as a middle-income country. It was, it was wow. really astounding. The size of Texas, uh, and they had 20 kilometers of roads, you said? 10. Yeah, it, the, oh, 10. <laughs> Paved road, yeah. yeah. Wow. No, I mean, the British were just like, just don't be German, right? We, yeah. don't, we don't effing care what you're <laughs> yeah. doing with your cows and like but your you sorghum fields, right? But you keep Germans. <laughs> no roads, no umpa bands. <laughs> oh, no, there were umpa bands. Those were okay. Um, weir- weirdly enough, there's this whole tradition of like brass are you serious? <laughs> yeah, because so 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 like like European missionaries couldn't like ship over pianos and organs. So what they did was ship over a whole bunch of brass instruments. So when when Southern African choirs tune, they tune like brad like a brass choir would. Crazy. That is astonishing that we even landed on that. Like I'm like umpa bands. You're like, well, funny you should mention that. So like, it's just. <laughs> get to trot this stuff out. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, I hadn't really... Um... I'm too busy talking about death, usually. Anyway, so, okay. Botswana, small, you know, small population, big country, free and fair elections for 40 years, you know, peaceful transition to democracy, kind of not something you had a lot of 
in Southern Africa, but then you had uh, a, a really massive HIV epidemic. Uh, the epidemic kind of started to emerge in like the mid to late 80s, and by 2000, it had the highest HIV prevalence in the world. Wow. Like 38%, I think, was the highest measurement. I mean, that's a that's huge, not a good percent. No. huge prevalence rate. No. So, so the, 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 the president of the country at the, ta- at the time, whose name was Festus Mochai, uh, got up at the International AIDS Conference and was like, look, we are, we are looking at national extinction. Because na- I mean, international health policy at the time was like, no, 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 Africans can't handle these fancy schmancy drugs, right? You need to do palliative care, palliative yeah. care. They probably just spend it all on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Or umpa bands. Yeah, you know, right. you know what they're like. So Botswana launched an, uh, an, an HIV treatment program using uh, antiretroviral therapies. And at a time when everybody was like, no, 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 you can't do this in Southern Africa. Patients won't know how to take the drugs. You don't have the infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and people stopped dying. I mean, it was really quite remarkable. People who remember the early 2000s are like, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Uh, and now the, you know, there are tens of thousands, something like 80, 100,000 Botswana on ARVs living, like you know, older people, little kids, like kids who would otherwise be dead. Well, how is that working? Because I remember there being a thing a few years ago about some of the drug companies really resisting uh, generic versions of these drugs from getting to developing countries, and there being a real drive to make that able to happen. So Botswana was able to get in on a UN brokered deal whereby the... Um... Someone at the back there really dislikes the UN. I don't know what... Okay. I don't know what that was, but someone was like, you fucking UN, I'm going to throw boxes at this right. podcast. Do you, are you a Trump supporter? Yeah, it's like... Um... I'm sorry. So, Excuse so... me, I love HIV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if anything, I want pro-retrovirals. <laughs> um, so they got sorry, they got in on a. So they so they got they got in on a deal around the two thousands. Country Brazil, both Brazil and South Africa, who have pharmaceutical manufacturing industries, right? They make drugs, they make their own drugs, and they were threatening uh-huh. to break patent. Right. right. They were just like, screw this intellectual property business. Like, we're going to break patent. And around that time, the UN started trying to broker deals with the pharmaceutical companies to lower the prices. Mm-hmm. And Botswana got in on that deal, where it was sort of like, okay, as long as you as long as you keep intellectual property right intact, and Botswana doesn't have much of a pharmaceutical manufacturing sector to begin with, uh, as long as they were willing to keep intellectual property rights intact. Uh, the the UN would broker a discounted rate for them on the drugs. So by the time I was there in between 2006 and the end of 2008, they were using a combination of uh, brand name pharmaceuticals that were being purchased through this UN broker discount program and some drugs uh, that were generics being that were manufactured either in South Africa or India. Um, and now, so... Has this program spread to neighboring countries? Because I know, like, South Africa, for example, has huge problems with HIV. Mm-hmm. And a president who maybe denies it? Used to. Well, sort of. I mean, the, the new president, the, the current president has a lot on his plate, including being accused of rape. That's 
a whole other story. I think you mean Imagine Becky. Imagine having a country whose president has been <laughs> yeah. accused of rape. Seems absurd. Like, yeah. so, I, I know. <laughs> How so backwards could that country be? That, that is embarrassing like, that for that whole really, group. Yeah, yeah. My, my dissertation advisor argues that, that, that there's sort of long-standing models of, of Africa that imagine that Africa sort of gradually catches up to where the West has been, right? The West kind of keeps moving along and Africa keeps like trailing it. And she's like, the reverse. We, we are, Africa's leading the way, right? Yeah. So as far as presidents being accused of sexual misconduct, South Africa got there first. They are ahead of the curve. <laughs> They're way ahead of the curve. <laughs> they are way, way ahead of the curve. Uh, Botswana was the first country in sub-Saharan Africa to offer free public antiretroviral treatment to its citizens. Other countries in sub-Saharan Africa have subsequently caught up. Mozambique has a program. I think Zambia has a program. South Africa now has a program. All this, I mean, you know, part of what, what made Botswana in some ways uh, feasible was, that, was it's a really small population, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. with a really robust public health system. I mean, a lot of what happened to places like Zambia, Mozambique, Zimbabwe is that they, they were... <laughs> Basically, their, their health systems were dismantled under structural adjustment programs in these sort of 80s and 90s, which were lo- sort of programs where they were offered loans or forgiven on sort of past due payments by the IMF and the World Bank, but in return, they had to restructure their economies, which basically meant dismantling the public sector, right? So no more, no more free schooling, no more free healthcare, no more any of this business, right? So the, in a way, the HIV epidemic and structural adjustment programs that dismantled the, the public sector sort of created a, it was a terribly overused phrase, but it was a perfect storm. It was a terrible coincidence of things going on at the same time. Botswana, because it had these diamond deposits and the, the price of diamonds you know, is artificially elevated, but it, it doesn't fall, right? And so their economy has never tumbled the way that uh, Zambia's economy, which was heavily dependent on copper, right, fell when copper prices fell, right? right? And so Botswana's public health system, when it came time to be like, okay, we have all these people who are sick and we have all these drugs and we need to somehow get the drugs to the people, you need an infrastructure in place to do that. And Botswana had one. Hmm. Did that country have uh, a lot of, you said, which leader was it you were talking about? Is it Botswana's leader who also might be a denier, like an HIV denier? It was the previous South African okay. leader. And like one of their cabinet as well was, yeah, very heavily into the HIV... If you're not familiar with this, basically there's a uh, there's a conspiracy theorist crank uh, movement that denies that HIV causes AIDS, and in fact, in some cases, claims that AIDS is caused by the symptoms of AIDS are side effects of anti-HIV drugs. I worked with a guy. The, the job that I moved out to Portland for, I was an engineer, and one of my coworkers was. Uh, he was a literalist when it comes to like the Old Testament. Like he had, he's the guy who had the reason why people live to be 800 years old is because of all the pressure that the water was exerting in the atmosphere before the floods. So we all lived in a hyperbaric chamber. And that's why we lived. <laughs> and he also believed and lotion, just also, lotion all the time. Yeah, coconut water. That sounds coconut amazing. Water. Um, but he also didn't believe HIV/AIDS. And if you asked him about anything, he said, "Well, this kind is caused by poppers." Like so, that's how you explain gay people having AIDS. It's a side effect. Oh yeah. Of that a was a thing. Drug. And then I forgot the rest. Of, but yeah, he probably believed. Was that a big... Have you studied denial of... Uh... 
It, denial was not a big thing in Botswana. The guy, the guy that you're talking about is Tabo Mbeki, by the right. way, right? Who is also like, he's also I maybe mean, he's the son of like a of a, of a high up in the ANC in exile, right? I mean, he comes out of this whole political lineage, and there there are people who would argue that that Mbeki was really trying to make an argument. That, you know, whatever his denialism was incredibly dangerous, and it probably killed tens of thousands of people. But but the but the the one point he might have had in all of that. Uh, was was tying the epidemic to poverty, right? Which, if you look at the at the history of structural adjustment programs, you see. But there is there's there's fabulous work done by historians and anthropologists looking at kind of the totally messed up crap that was coming out uh, on HIV in the early 80s in the U.S. Right? Like um, it was you know, theories that it was caused by poppers. Uh, it was referred to as grids. Uh, gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome, or my favorite, WOG, Wrath of God syndrome. Oh. Right? And yeah, there, just there, call it what and, it is, man. And, and, I mean, just, just own that that's basically right, no, what so, you feel. So, so there, was, there was an argument that, that, that some clinicians made that the reason, the reason that gay men were getting AIDS, right, because this was before the virus was detected, the reason that men were getting AIDS and women were not was because, was the, I kid you not, the rugged vagina fragile anus theory. Right, which I, which I saw rugged uh, vagina fragile anus open for Interpol. And they, were, <laughs> they were fantastic. Right? If you get the chance. So 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 like not the National Enquirer, but like clinicians were arguing that the w- reason women didn't have AIDS was because women were built to be penetrated and men were not. This is this is clinical science here. <laughs> <laughs> Run with it, come on. Uh, for the listeners at home, that, um, that reaction was the entire audience what? responding to us all just taking a beat there for a second. Just, that was just all of us like, okay. Uh, I think the guys were just taking a mental cue to be like, uh, yeah, you can penetrate me, sure. <laughs> You're right. Have at it. <laughs> Go nuts. <laughs> Uh, where to go from rugged vagina? Um. <laughs> Let me see if I can. So there were all these pictures. <laughs> there are all these pictures from the mid '80s of of kids like uh, Ryan White surrounded by animals to try to kind of humanize him, if you will. That like if fluffy dogs loved him, then he couldn't be unlovable, right? But like that, you. Know, it was it was like popular cultural conceptualizations of HIV and clinical conceptualizations of HIV. Like, you would sort of be like, surely the experts, like, should know something that, you know, some guy on the street does not. But, like, no, they're, they're really working with the same kind of understandings of the world. Yeah. So if you, if you had, uh, if you could go back in time to the early days of the AIDS epidemic, like, what things, or... I guess for the future, when epidemics break out in developing countries, like what are things that people will know to, to do differently or what is the main thing about education or just trying to like take away all the capitalism of the drugs and just make them as cheap and generic as possible or what's the secret for the next HIV crisis? <laughs> oh man, what a dark thing. Sorry. No, I mean like positively, like what could be done differently in a in a scenario that comes in the future when there's another epidemic of, of some yet to be discovered thing. I'll t- I'll, most of the medical anthropologists I know get nervous when politicians or policymakers start describing 
Africans in particular as incapable of wielding technologies, right? Incapable of what technologies? Incapable of, of using technologies oh, yeah. appropriately. Incapable of, of, you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, I mean, this might be okay for us, but like, they can't tell time, right? Yeah. No, it's it's uh, there's a West Wing episode. Where there, that... There's actually a fabulous West Wing yeah. episode. It's fantastic. No, it's fantastic. All of our like... research is on the West Wing. <laughs> in Trump's America, I live in the West Wing. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, you have uh, to like... cite it at the bottom of your research papers. Uh, season three, episode four of Walk and Talk. I actually, Let's used do this. This, I used this episode in the. Uh, I, so I had to I had to propose my dissertation project to my department and have it approved before I went to do the research, and I used. Uh, I, that episode, <laughs> right? Where, where it's sort of like the big thing, it's a visiting African leader from like the Republic of Equatorial Kundu, yeah. right? Who comes to the White House and... Uh, the country's falling apart and, and he's trying he's, to negotiate with drug men. Yeah, he's, he's, he's in these tense negotiations being mediated by Bradley... Uh, what's his name? Bradley, Bradley Whitford, Whitford, right? Um, over, over whether or not the drug companies are really at fault for pricing these things. Out, out of the reach of, of people who need them, and like what where at the moment, like the moment of intense drama when it really falls apart, is it like they don't have watches? Yeah. <laughs> that's it. And the at, reason they can't take their medicine three times a day is because they don't have watches. Southern that's Africans like that, have better cell phone down. infrastructure than you people do. <laughs> <laughs> um, they've they've had time for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> they invented time. <laughs> Well, I, I want to get um, onto some of Brian's research as well, because that sort of ties us into what well, we're talking about, sort of fucked up countries and sort of authoritarianism. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> well done. That was all fun. Because you, uh, you specialize in linguistics, but particularly you're talking about like Russia, Russia and Russian folk music and... Yeah. Let's get into this. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm a little out of the game. I defended my dissertation in 2014, and I've basically been a stay-at-home dad since then. So this this one is the one you want to talk to about smart things. I I can tell you where like the best playgrounds are in Portland. Um, but when I was doing that kind of stuff, uh, what I was interested in was um, nationalism in Russia, which I could not get funding for to save my life for years. <laughs> Nobody, everybody. not important, dude. It's not going to be important. <laughs> Who's going to care? Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to be a problem. It's not like that's going to be a rising problem. Yeah. So, so you were on the early cusp of that. Yeah, yeah I was really for I was cutting edge. <laughs> were you like watching P- Putin's basic rise yeah. to power and being yeah. like watching his uh, minister was... of uh, what media manipulation and stuff like that? Uh, I wouldn't say I was that high up, but I mean, I was, it was, I mean, I was in, I was in Moscow when uh, Medvedev and, and Putin were basically throwing the electoral ball back and forth between each other and playing keep away. Like, yeah. That was, um, <laughs> It's not great. Like it's you know, I've got friends out there right now who I'm worried about. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> Wait to bring the mood down after all the AIDS talk. <laughs> we do nothing but cheer each other up in our household. This is, this is the thing. I, I so I wanted to do my dissertation on music, on a kind of uh, on, on nationalism using a kind of folk music that was very popular in the sixties and seventies. Almost but, like but how we use country music. Exactly. It's pretty much exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or, I um, mean, the example I usually go to was the uh, uh, Reagan's use of, of Springsteen's Born in the USA. Something where, like, a very obvious protest song is now being turned on its head, and why isn't anyone noticing, and it doesn't actually matter, and blah, 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 blah. Um, but I, I, like, I remember when, because we, we met
dad in grad school. And I remember going like, you, you can work on deaf all you want. I'm going to go work on music, something light. Like, and the next thing I know, I'm working on fascism and, and deaf. And it was horrible. And you somehow ended up working on... There were on, guitars. Like, there were, yeah, come there were on, guitars. there were guitars. There were guitars. And, and vodka. So much vodka. Oh, my God. Yeah. This machine helps fascists. <laughs> that's, that's, that's written on the bottle of vodka. <laughs> so you're making the comparison. It would be as if there were like Putin youth who were suddenly getting into Peter, Paul, and Mary. Was Pretty much. Basically, like, uh, or I mean, like, if uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I cringe at whatever Trump's fans listen to, but like, I'm sure, yeah, <laughs> fucking like, Creed, actually, Nickelback, Hoobastank, Incubus, Incubastank, Hoobabus, Goobastank, Breaking Dark, Lip Brisket. It's like, I mean, I mean, there is something kind of amazing about American politics where, like, without a doubt, guaranteed, the, like, the campaign song that they go with is always the worst possible choice if you listen to the lyrics. <laughs> did you, it's like did Trump's you, favorite movie is Citizen Kane. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Citizen Kane? <laughs> yes. Remember after his inauguration when he slow danced to My Way by Sinatra? <laughs> the most ominous song ever. It literally says it's like... What is it? And now the end is near. <laughs> and now the end is near. The curtain call. It's like, it's like good night, America. Click, click, turn off the lights. And soon we'll all be dead. Unless <laughs> I can't be circle. trusted with a yeah. button. Like, Holy I think, shit. Was it, was it Michelle Bachman who used American Girl by Tom Petty? <laughs> right? like, it's like, you, you, you should look at the liner notes at least once. <laughs> That's like, awesome. Like, maybe you can get away without reading the bill, but like at least read the lyrics. <laughs> so, so, did you come in? Trying to think did you, you did you come in through the anthropology route or through the linguistics route or both or how? So I my so I'm I'm a linguistic anthropologist is, is by training. So uh, what does that exactly mean? It basically means I'm looking at the role of language in culture. So it's the same sort of. I mean, there are, there are medical anthropologists who do work on language. There are... Linguistic uh, anthropologists who do work on medicine. Yeah. It's, it's essentially just a, a perspective. Um, so uh, it means that the toolbox that I carry to the field is a little bit different than the toolbox that um, another kind of anthropologist might take. So the one that I carry is... Um, I tend to look at the way that people relate to language, what they think language can do. So very much the way that, that you talk about medis- medical anthropology is the ideas that people have about medicine. Linguistic anthropologists uh, tend to get very uh, concerned with what they call linguistic ideology. So what can words do? What do you think words can do? So, for instance, I mean, sorry, this is just a... Yeah. Uh, this is the closest example and familiar one that I can think of. Like, I'm fascinated by the rhetoric around American politics where it's like, well, he speaks from the heart, so don't listen to exactly what he's saying. He's probably fucking that up. But, like, you know, listen, to, listen beyond that, because isn't it amazing that he's not scripted or something? And it's like, right, but politicians actually only have one job or two jobs, make decisions and use words. So, like... Be accountable if, for your words. Right, yeah. but, like, if you can't do one of those, that should be a problem... Uh, no. Yeah. No, not, right? like, I think we found it. No. no exactly. That's it. So, so that's that's where the sort of uh, that's where the linguistic anthropologists would get really interested and go like, okay, so clearly there's a a kind of a cosmology about what you can do with words and what you can't, and who gets to wield them and who gets to. Yeah, what do you think is going to happen now with like the concept of fake news being? Put out there. And this is a word that is changing, like maybe the whole discourse of like politics, 
And uh, it brings up personal ideologies because a lot of people on some level are like, well, I'm being lied to by somebody, you know, like the government or the media or the corporations or something like that. So is there a way that we can come as a society, like in societies, if this has ever happened before, like, can you come back from that? Where you're just like, everything could be a lie, <laughs> like on a p- I mean, full political level. I mean, there's, there's this weird level where like, as, as somebody with a scientific background, I think, mm-hmm. like, there's this bit where it's like, well, I do kind of appreciate the skepticism. Like, and it is great that people are at least thinking twice if that's what was happening. But that's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, I don't trust the Jews. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to be, was that blunt? <laughs> He's kept, he has kept that campaign promise. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, if it, yeah, maybe, I mean, the, the, at least that, that was what ultimately the punchline of my research at least ended up being that um, I was trying to figure out, like, why was this music banned in the Soviet Union and now why is it coming back and what's going on with it? And a lot of it was it was illegal because it was sounded too Jewish at the time. Whoa. So there, and, and that's the thing where it's like, okay, so. The Beastie Boys are huge there. <laughs> <laughs> What was bizarre was like, uh, yeah, the Beastie Boys, not so much, but uh, Freddie Mercury was gigantic, and I could never figure out why. Interesting. But he, yeah, I mean, I'm, there, there are some, t- I mean, God, there were people who were like, um, I would ask them, like, okay, so the, the kind of music I study was called bardic music, bards uh, performing it. And I was like, and they would be like, they would be like, no, Bard, Vladimir Vysotsky, Alexander Galich, Mark Knopfler. Whoa. You are KGB right next to me. <laughs> I thought you were being possessed for five seconds. There's actually a long tradition of anthropologists being accused of being spies, so he's, he's right where he should be. So this, this folk music, is it mostly instrumental, or are there, lyric, are there lyrics to it? It's, it's, it's lyric-driven and so lyrical, in fact, that, well... Uh, I mean, Russians uh, are very big on poetry, you might have heard. Um, so uh, the, the poetry is sort of always held up to be the most important thing about, about this music. They are bards in the sense that they perform poetry to music. Um, but in the 60s and 70s, when this stuff was really circulating hugely, it was on uh, reel-to-reel tape recorders that people were copying and then copying over and copying over and copying over until all you could hear was a warbled guitar and a guy going... And you're missing all of the poetry of, for example, I want to ride my bicycle, I want to ride my bike. <laughs> <laughs> Fat bottom girls. They rock and roll go But one of the beautiful things Brian found was that when people heard the cleaned-up versions later, they were like, this sounds profoundly wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, this is. I think it's. I mean, it's something that hipsters can definitely. Get, it's like no, the vinyl is. You need that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. They're super into the lo-fi exactly. aspect. That was it. Yeah. So it wasn't that there was like lyrical content that was nationalist, and that's why it's coming back by this group now. It was just this nostalgia for an era or something. Right? I think. I think it was a nostalgia for an era that you could be on the right side of something, and okay. it's. Um, I mean, the the at the time the music was was passed around and everybody listened to it, but it was this sort of little act of trust that you could have with somebody by singing along with them or giving them. Time. It was essentially like sharing a joint, you know. Not in Portland, obviously, but um, <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing where if you were gonna get arrested and persecuted, this was not going to be great and it was going to be used against you. But otherwise, everybody could trust each other, and it was a little act of community building. 
Putin describes listening to it, doesn't he? Like yeah, sitting no. around in his dacha listening to this music. Working for the KGB. Yeah. I mean, he says like he was, you know, oh, I love Vizotsky. This was great to listen to. You know, I, I was right there with him and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. And, now, and now, so this music that started off as subversive has now been co-opted by the nationalists. I, at least that's where, when I last left things, it looked as though it was going that way. And I mean, that, and that's a controversial statement in some ways because it's, you know, the people who I worked with would say, no, 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 it would, you know, this music is inherently not fascist. There's nothing you could ever do to this. Um, but, yeah. But if it's being used by fascists, then it becomes it's, inherently fascist. It's, I mean, I, I, again, and I say this a few years out of the research, so maybe it took a different turn, um, but it didn't look great when I was like, well, I'll help you out. I'll, I'll talk some sense <laughs> into these knuckleheads. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't know if it's a stretch to say this, but it feels like across the board, just in general, there's the tools of progressiveness and the the language of liberalism has been co-opted by the right in terms of like sort of lang- language choice and policing language and being offended by things and even like what we're talking about like skept- this skepticism where well, I mean and fake, like, fake news didn't come from the right that was that was that was initially a oh well look at all the stuff that's being used against Hillary Clinton and then immediately, what's the next move? The Republicans are like, oh, well, excuse me, not the Republicans, I guess the alt-right mostly picked this up. And then said, ooh, we can use that. Like that and that, we that can, argument works really we well. We can be yeah. offended by things, or at least claim to be offended <laughs> by things, and generate and really and strengthen our position by what we're in opposition to. Yeah, yeah. if and you're like the underdog, yeah. that's, the, that's the perspective you need to keep. And, so. all, and all these t- tools of like scientific skepticism can then be co-opted for conspiracy theorists yeah. and... So a lot of this is about uh, wearing the aesthetics of the persecuted, right? Like, which is handy if your music's been outlawed. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, when 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 Putin says that you know I used to listen to Vizotsky, what he's saying is I was hunted just like you were, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Even but, though I worked for the KGB. Even though so I when, was the guy oh hunting God, people. I'm, I'm gonna get so killed when this gets put out. <laughs> <laughs> Slow yeah, but this is also like the AIDS denialism. Do you know what I mean? Right. In the in the sense that they're positioning themselves as the underdogs, right? No, they're they're the ones crying the truth from the wilderness. Right. And uh, vaccine um, yeah. skepticism, which is very much the wrong word, but the word they would use. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, like just vaccine denialism. It's the same. Like, oh, these big. It is particularly hard when you are dealing with pharmaceutical companies which have done shitty things, like we were just discussing. And are definitely driven by profits, but also have produced drugs that have saved millions of lives. And the, exactly. the sheer number of people who'd have to be in on the conspiracy makes it impossible. Somebody shared a story with me, and I, I didn't read very deeply into it, so, so yeah, it, I haven't verified the facts. But the story was that a small town in Minnesota that has a high number of immigrants from Somalia to the U.S., uh, was targeted by an anti-vax group who came to the town, held lots of meetings, lots of sort of anti-vax information sessions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the town is now experiencing a major measles outbreak because they didn't vaccinate the kids. I mean, the, the thing is, is that, like, it's, it's one thing to kind of position these things as though these are all sort of... You know, there's a marketplace for ideas, right? And you have your Coke ideas and your Pepsi ideas and your Sprite ideas, right? And and we, as as sort of enlightened consumers, should be able to cons- you know, choose among them, right? But we're right? Not. <laughs> not, exactly. We're easily misled, and <laughs> right. When you start digging a little bit deeper, you start seeing some real, some far more specific relationships of power and money. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right, that are shaping people's perception of what they should believe and what they should be scared of and what is a fact and what is not. 
it seems also just in the media and or the new narrative is this sort of general across the board false equivalence where every idea carries equal weight, yeah. every argument has a counter argument that is equally valid, and that comes into the sort of global uh, climate change, uh, vaccines, HIV, AIDS, where it's like, well, let's hear this other side out. I think it's honestly the fall of a democracy because <laughs> it comes it comes about when you basically are like, everyone can like has an opinion and it's equal value, then like somebody who says just the most hyperbolic crazy stuff can say it, it's just as equally valuable, and then he's allowed to amass all of the followers who now are fed up with all the bullshit, and then that's, like, how fascism, like, rises out of a democracy. But the crazy thing, then, is that why do some democracies wind up in this situation and others don't? Right? So far. Uh, so, so, so far, okay, one well, could argue that this largest... is a general trend and the U.S. is just ahead of the game on this particular one, right? America first. <laughs> right? Um, or, or... Guys, you gotta laugh through the apocalypse. Yeah. You gotta chuckle, all right? Mystery Science Theater on 3000 on Netflix. By, by the way, just as a quick aside, because we're recording on the Sunday, uh, a, a big ha-ha fuck you to Le Pen. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Right <laughs> you didn't do anything. <laughs> I bet they at least shared an article or a tweet or two. Don't you say that, Hampton. <laughs> but uh, that's the second one in a row now after yeah. the Netherlands. So good for you, Europe. But it really is like, it's down to like Putin and Trump. Like these are the two big empires that are basically the culmination of all like capitalism, greed, like unchecked, the way we oh. fucked over the Soviet Union and, and now Bre- they're like becoming. And the, totally. And then well, there's Brexit as well. And it, a lot of it is playing off this, with this false nostalgia, which I think was some of the stuff that Brian was talking about with just this sort of, this idea of a country that probably never even really existed, but we could just recreate this, recapture this thing that once was. Especially in the United States, because it's like, if we were really to acknowledge the awful things that like we've done, we we really are on equivalent with any any bad country. Really, you'd almost like point to like on a on. It's it's sad to you know think of yourselves not as the good guys, but it's almost like you have to erase concepts of good and evil, really, because the world doesn't think. No one thinks of themselves as evil. You know, no, everyone has a kind of a just it, they're in it for themselves. And if you are born into like an oligarch position, you know, born a billionaire, born into a lot of money, you don't have this disposition of like all the rules that we make society play where it's like good and bad and, you know, like low level laws and stuff like that. Have you seen that there is there's a couple of awesome graphs out there that where they asked people, what do you think the wealth distribution in the U.S. is? what do you think the wealth distribution in the U.S. should be? And what is the actual wealth distribution? And they are radically divergent from one another, right? People think that, people think, or at least the people who are polled think, that there's a much more even distribution of wealth than there actually is. And what they describe as being desirable is an even more equitable distribution of wealth than... Wait, did I mix that up? Yeah, no, no, that's right. Yeah. Right. What, whatever they, the one, the one that they think exists is sort of more equitable than exists, and the one that they think should be is even more equitable than that. Right. So whatever it is that people think that oligarchs and billionaires and what do you know what I mean? Like people, people are sort of. There is a sense that maybe something is not quite right here. Well, <laughs> you said, it's like it's like. Duh. <laughs> no, that, I just that, mean it's that's like science I, f- I feel like it's almost like 
it's happened. Yep. Like they've oh, yeah. they've, been, they've manipulated it through all these these ways. The nationalism. It's a you know it's a historic tactic of. Do you do think that America people. has a unique thing with the American dream, where people might be voting for a future aspirational version of themselves as benefit? Like so. Okay. So one thing you you may or may not know about Reed College is that every senior has to write a thesis. And every thesis has to be defended in for they spend they have a two hour defense in front of a panel of four faculty, uh, which means the faculty have to read all those theses. <laughs> uh, so so my mind is a little blinded right now because that was last week. Uh, but one of the one of them I read was on the history of cholera in the U.S. Uh, and there were there were a couple of major cholera epidemics in the 1820s and the 1830s in the U.S. Um, and competing kinds of doctors with very different ideas about what should be done, including just bleeding people profusely uh, uh, in, with sort of an understanding of what it was that that would do. But in, in the wake of the cholera epidemic, one thing I learned that was fascinating to me was that many states abolished their medical licensing laws, right? And they were like, there should just be an open competition Right. So anyone can be a doctor. So anyone can be a doctor. Anyone can be a like doctor. Like Dr. Right? Dre can become a real doctor. <laughs> this is embarrassing, but I'm just finding out for the first time that Dr. Dre is not a real doctor. <laughs> you just have like a crazy scar from where he operated. What the fuck? <laughs> He's a doctor of beats. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so he was like a PhD rather than a general practitioner. I gotcha. But I think I think there is something something in the U.S. historically of of needing to um, push back at expertise, right? Oh. <laughs> uh, as as something as something sure. fundamentally undemocratic, right? Right? If we are all if we are all equal, then why am I a doc? Like, who the hell am I to be a doctor when you're not? Right? Who are you to yeah. tell me what to do? Right? Like, there is. And I mean, a knee-jerk defense, of, you know. But there's something good about that. I mean, this, the, the problem is that it, there's no, 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 no. But like, I mean, like, I, like, yes, horrible outcomes, and this is all evil. But like, we're participating in this right now. Like, having a podcast that opens science up to a larger audience with comedy is sort of taking it down a peg so that it's accessible. I'd say more than one peg. But I should point out this particular episode is on one of the higher pegs <laughs> right now. <laughs> We've done substantially lower pegs in our time. <laughs> we are kind of ruining. Yeah, we're kind of anti-expertise. Yeah, like, Jesus. Yeah, what do you We know? don't know what we're talking about. Why are you guys listening to us? Go listen to actual science. Probably God. science. <laughs> yeah. So non-committal. I guess but, I'm just trying to say, like, but it's there is a good impulse in there. Mm-hmm. And, and the trick is just to make sure it doesn't go bad, right? Like, right. Yeah. Right. If only people's <laughs> egos weren't so fragile. If, if people weren't horrible. <laughs> yeah, if only people weren't people. <laughs> so would you, uh, when you were in the field, Betsy, when, do you notice that this sort of a general mistrust of Americans when you're going to do your studies? Or like you as an American? Or like how do you present yourself to, like how do you explain to the people that you are involved in your studies what it is that you do? Listen up, everybody. White person's about to talk now. <laughs> is that what you do? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that you should put it that way. So I was I, so what I was actually looking at was American physicians uh, supported by private organizations coming in and trying to support Botswana's public HIV treatment system. So there were there were lots of American doctors floating around, and I was frequently mistaken for one, uh, which was really disturbing. 
uh, right to the point where people would be like, oh yeah, you know how to do this, right? Just like cut right there. I'm like, <laughs> no, not, not, not what I, not what I spent my graduate school career learning how to do, right? And like, I, I ultimately made a rule for myself, which was like, no sharp things. I will do any, all kinds of things in medical settings with, that don't involve sharp things. Uh, but so there were, there were, there were lots of, there were lots of Americans floating around and you know, lots of Botswana clinicians and Botswana patients. Uh, and also lots of lots of people from other parts of Africa who were working in Botswana's health system. Uh-huh. And part of what was really tricky was convincing the the Botswana clinicians that I was not just another American asshole, right? Because they just basically saw an Ameri- white American show up in a clinical setting, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we we know exactly the brand of asshole you are," right? Um, <laughs> The fragile one. <laughs> the, the fragile, the fragile one. That's yes, a fragile exactly. Asshole, as uh, we've discussed earlier. Which was, which was. I mean, there was a lot of mistrust. Is that, is that how a callback works? <laughs> you got it, dude. Let's take it on the road. <laughs> so what? What helped was that many of these Americans were on sort of short-term programs where they were rotating in and out of Botswana for about six to eight weeks, right? So they would come, show up on the wards of the hospital, tell everybody what to do for six weeks, go on safari, and then go home to wherever the hell was. And you're like, I helped the, the world. <laughs> no, pretty much. That was, and Back they were like, Trump okay, now, now, now I know what global health is, right? Yeah. Because uh, right, I mean, it, it got really kind of yucky because the, one of the one of the inst- one of the American institutions I was working with was trying, on the one hand, to offer some like continuing education for the Botswana clinicians because there's no there wasn't any medical school, so people would go do their medical training, come back to Botswana, but there wasn't like a residency. Mm. Right. So so they were like, okay, what we can do is like help these cl- these junior clinicians out by like offering them some training. And then what we can also do is bring our own students over from our medical school and have them spend six weeks on the ward learning global health. Uh, and these, these two objectives did not work particularly well with one another because you, in order to offer training to the local clinicians, it was like, okay, look, you guys are, have, are competent, you can learn things, we can help you. And then they would bring their students over and kind of point at the local doctors and be like, look at these total incompetent assholes, right? They don't know what they're doing, right? And that's how you know you're doing global health, is you found these stupid African doctors, right? It, it was really ugly. It, wow. It was wow. really, I don't, think they, I don't think they really understood, I mean, things got really tense. The program almost shut down, right? Because the doctors really got tired of this shit. Um, and Botswana is a country, I mean, the Botswana sort of said goodbye to the Peace Corps in, I think, the 90s, right? They were like, thank you, we are developed enough. Like, go away. We're not, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're done being treated like this. Give it up for Botswana. <laughs> <laughs> that one guy. Who right, so having, having a whole bunch of Americans come back in and be like, oh, wow, you guys are really made a f- shit job of this. Let me tell you what you've done wrong and how you can fix it. What did not go well. I can believe that. Um, It's it's sort of a different flavor, perhaps, of American assholery, right? Mm. From from what you see Trump style, but it was it was really um, what's the word I'm looking for? Horrible. Yeah. (laughs) So 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 me coming in there. I mean, one of the things I actually did is I developed a really weird accent. (laughs) White girl wasted. (laughs) 
Brian's job. My my job, my job was to not sound like every other American out there. And in, in, in Botswana, they speak they speak an African language called Setswana, which I learned some of. Uh, but they also speak a an English that's different from American English. Uh, you know, so like, there's a different vocabulary, different pronunciation. Uh, a group of a group of Americans I knew went to a restaurant and ordered. Ordered what? Ordered something to come before the main part of the meal. What you might call that would be an uh, an appetizer. Yeah. No, you maybe not you. TGI Friday's hot appetizer. Yeah. I might call it. I might call an hors d'oeuvre. Okay. Oh. They call in, in Southern Africa. You call it a starter. Let's okay. order starters. I and, might call it that as well. Right, but they didn't. They either didn't know or didn't care that you call it a starter because what they ordered were appetizers. And in Southern Africa, there's a a, a brand of fizzy juice called Appletizer. And they wound up with a table full of Appletizers. Not a big deal, but but so even even just making your English understandable to the people around you went pretty far. Right, you've made the bare minimum of effort, which no one else has done, like sort of effort, like, oh, she's learned the language, like, which is a thing that is nice to do when you go to a place. Right, so I would, I mean, I would have conversations with with people where they'd they'd be like, oh, I'd be like, oh, I'd say something in Setswana, and they'd repeat it back to me and laugh. Right. (laughs) And it would go on like this for, like, chains of things, right? But, like, even a little bit of the language was more than most Americans. Yeah, because that's just an instant code that you're not that person. Yeah. The problem is just did you come back to the U.S. and then have like the Madonna British accent? Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it drove him insane. Oh my God! It was so horrible. You have to have a pop career after this. I, no, I'd be like, I, I remember asking you. I'd be like, Oh, where did you leave uh, my sunglasses or something like that? And you would go, mm, like that, which was something she had learned in Southern Africa, which was to move with her eye. Was it your eyebrows? Is it? Oh no, it was your lips. It's you. You point, you with, your, point, you with, your point with your lips. That's right. You point with your lips to where you, it is to go. Mm, you're good. Yeah. It's yeah. exactly. I mean, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's at that point, like, I'd be like, "You're from fucking New Jersey." Ishman, not me. So, are you still? Are you? Is that study still going on for you, or are you moving on to a new area of research? So my my job this summer is to get the book manuscript for that project out the door. Okay, this is a little intimidating. The the I have sort of two two other projects that I'm thinking about. One is a project on Botswana's medical school, which is is brand new, and I'm interested in that because because part of the conversation around it while I was doing my fieldwork was is how do we how do we build a medical school in Botswana that that addresses the specific needs of a place where like HIV might be part of primary care without making it seem like it is necessarily substandard because it doesn't match exactly what American or British medical school curricula look like. Mm. So that's project number one. Project number two, uh, so part of the reason Transformers why... reboot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, oh, that I wish. Was... <laughs> Her other project stars Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Are they so ready in... for an all Botswana Ghostbusters? <laughs> right. <laughs> Robotswana. <laughs> <laughs> So in the 70s, 
second project, Mark, Mark Wahlberg stars as a surgeon. <laughs> has, has, has he already been a surgeon? Yeah. No, not yet. So okay. So, I'm the strongest surgeon of all. <laughs> so, so using leveraging his science teacher background right. from the, the yeah the M Night Shyamalan the happening, <laughs> you, leveraging that, Mark Wahlberg plays a surgeon. So part of the reason why Brian has been a stay-at-home dad is because uh, right after he defended right after he defended his dissertation, our first daughter was born. And about four weeks after she was born, she was diagnosed with a life-threatening congenital liver ailment. Holy shit. Uh, Underwent surgery to try to forestall the need for a liver transplant. That worked for about 14, 15 months, and then she had a massive esophageal bleed and went into liver failure, and he's been, and had a liver transplant. And she's doing awesome. And she's doing great. Yay yay medicine, yay science. So so Mark Mark Wahlberg would play the transplant surgeon uh, in all this. But it was it was a really it was it was terrifying. Of course. Uh, and and you. Uh, and the most annoying part was that she knew everything about doctors and pediatric wards and everything. And so I was like, the whole time I had given her a lot of crap about how I had to learn another language and she just had to hang out with American doctors. And I I like I'm admitted with my daughter and everyone's going like, well she's going to be NPO and they're going to have to do a CBC and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, you did your that's fine. No. <laughs> I speak a little medicine, yeah. um, which, which, which I did not which. Which I did not do for this reason, but turned out to be kind of convenient. Um, but so I've been, it was, a, it, you know, it's not why I went into medical anthropology, yeah. but it's something that I kind of couldn't help think about as an anthropologist. So we write about that from time to time. We're not quite sure what we want to do with those writings. But there's, wow. a, there's a potential other project. There's there a potential of, other project there of uh, she, we didn't ultimately. I feel like, is healthcare like important now? Like it might, <laughs> yeah, it might yeah, possibly right? be. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 it doesn't exist now. <laughs> it's gone, so. Who does that? Yeah. Right, so like, like her medical statements, just this, you know, because we, she, OHSU is a wonderful place, but they don't do liver transplants in children up there. So she had to be uh, transferred down to Stanford, and so all of our, all of our mail, including our medical statements from our health insurance company, were like piling up here while we were in California for months and months and months and just going back through the archive of the statements and figuring out who was charging what for whom right there's a there's a wonderful New York Times piece I'm sure I'm sure you guys you know can read it if or if you haven't already but it's like how do you how does a bag of saline wind up costing three hundred and fifty four dollars Mm. Right, like watching the charges build up um, on her account, and she ultimately had a statement that like totaled the transplant for something like it was, was two it, million. It was two million. Yeah. It was over two million dollars. Yeah, right. So, um, lifetime caps, yay. Right, right. Yeah. lifetime oh, caps, uh, um, so out of pocket maximums, yeah. right, pre-existing conditions. I mean, even assuming I keep my job and assuming that that we stay, uh, she manages to stay under my health insurance under the HCA, uh, AHCA. You know, when she hits 26 and she can't stay under our plan, we don't we don't know what would happen. But, but I mean, uh, just just to bring this back to something hilariously funny, um, <laughs> like. <laughs> part of, part of part of the thing I recognize is that I mean from from and I think the thing that I really love about your work is none of this has to do with viruses with genetics with you know ninety nine point nine percent of what medicine is is cultural 
and and it's it's the sort of yes there is a bodily raw material in there but the rest of what's going on here is is a cultural framework so when when a senator or a congressman or whatever talks about how like well you know we're talking about people who uh, haven't been living well paying for people who have lived well this is where your work really kind of this is cuts exact, a knife through this. This is exactly it, right. In Botswana, the, the, the decision was made and almost universally supported that, like, yes, not everybody has this virus, but everybody who has it is going to have the medication for free, and that's the end of the story. Um, and we will use our money to because the cost of doing otherwise was perceived to be too great. I did a... Before I came to read, I was on a postdoc at Princeton, and there was a... Uh, an econ- health economist named Uwe Reinhardt, who is this incredibly dry German, very German, like dry the way you that like only a German economist could be dry. <laughs> but he would, he would, we, did a, we did a sort of a, a social science class on global health, and he would come in and do a guest lecture comparing the health systems of the U.S., Germany, and Taiwan. And, and you would expect him to say something ultimately about the money, right, or about supply or demand or... Uh, curves, I don't know, whatever, this is like way out of my wheelhouse, but like what he would come down to is sort of like, look, this is really all about values. What you are seeing in these different healthcare systems is not because one country can do this and the other country cannot do that, but because you are seeing values enshrined in the kind of health systems that occur. And that, that in, in my mind is, sorry, this is a terrible word to use in a comedy uh, podcast, but it's kind of heartbreaking in America right now, right? To think that people would, would be so uninvested in other people's well-being. So all we have to wait for is uh, for 40% of our populace to have a life-threatening uh, <laughs> disease, and then we'll get public health care. And, and for Bill this. Gates to be a Canadian and then donate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> actually waiting for African countries to to target the U.S. for much needed health relief aid. (laughs) Do we know it's Christmas? I feel like though it is like we are pushing it to now it's like we're we're breaking the system and the people aren't going to have it. Like we'll just demand that you have to dismantle insurance companies the way that they work. When you realize the the things that come under the pre-existing conditions like just Asthma or a pulse. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, it's just it's yeah. ridiculous. It has to swing back. Like vaginas, <laughs> like that. Just exactly. Well, those are pretty rugged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. They are those damn rugged vaginas. You fragile. I was wondering asshole. if we could bring it to one lighthearted thing before we close things out. Please. Um, also, also cultural, anthropological, not medical. But before this show, I was researching uh, some of both your work, and I read Brian's article on Max Headroom. <laughs> and he showed him to the 80s, remember Max Headroom? <laughs> I don't know why that hasn't come, that should be the ultimate nostalgia thing that everybody's like losing their, sh- did you remember Max Headroom? What the fuck was that? Like, yeah, I, you just wait till they make an all-female one. And then... <laughs> Maxine Headroom. Yeah. Right. So for the, for the uninitiated, can you describe who or what Max Headroom was? Um, what so was this it? Was, this was something that I was writing about because I was uh, doing a sort of freelance writing project for All in the Media as an NPR show out of New York. And um, I did work since the stuff I do for Rush is on the culture of nostalgia. I thought I would, I would take a crack at it. And um, it, it, yeah, who was Max Headroom? Uh, I mean, it was basically like um, uh, everything that Jim Carrey was trying to be a lot. I mean... <laughs> 
I mean, one of the things you get when you go back and look at the series is that, like, oh my god, it was so dark and so Blade Runner influenced, and it's, and and also so prophetic in so many ways. Um, you know, there there are entire episodes about elections where the election is decided by uh, which channel you are tuned into, so that you are t- yeah, which like you know now it just seems like oh well, I know where they got that idea. Yeah. Um, but oh my god, also so much cocaine. Like it is, <laughs> it's, it's the manic pace that Matt Frewer is speaking at, and when you realize it's not CG, he's just wearing a mask, and they've got bad lighting on him and a grid behind him. It's just, it's terrifying. He's like that his heart isn't exploding. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work, respectively? So I'm in the Reed College Anthropology Department. Uh, so to find you... your work, you basically have to enroll in Reed. And... <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. Oh, to, to find you, you have to sort of enroll in Reed and take your Oh, courses. God, no, 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 no. Um, if, you, if you were to Google Reed College Anthropology, uh, up would pop a list of people, and hopefully I would be on it. Uh, we'll, put a, we'll put a link to your stuff as well. Do you... I mean, you've got some readable stuff. There's the, the Not Here piece might be a nice intro for people. Yeah, so let's see. Um, two pieces might be... Might, one, is on, one is on basically how global becomes uh, what, a, an epithet. Right? Yeah. People start insulting one another through the use of... Like, oh, yeah, well, I'm global, that's, you're global. That's He's global He's local, yeah. right? Uh, and the, so you can't even say global health in this, in this hospital in Botswana without uh, running the risk of insulting... Somebody. So that's one. And then the, there's another piece on, on how little kids in Botswana with HIV were taught very carefully by Americans to talk about having HIV. Hmm. So, hmm. so those hilarious articles. <laughs> there, there is sort of a love, there is a very funny moment in the, in the piece on, on how kids talk where, where children being children, they of course don't. They don't always perform like performing monkeys. They don't say what they're supposed to say. And so one of them absolutely upsets the apple cart. Excellent. We'll, put, we'll link to that on promisex.com <laughs> and in the show notes. And then Brian? Um, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can find him in many of Portland's indoor playgrounds. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm honestly, I'm not on the web right now, so just like, you probably can't find me. Excellent. <laughs> you try. That's your challenge, listeners. <laughs> exactly. I dare you. I dare you to find him. Thanks. Uh, Hampton. I think the FSB is going to be on them before you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, go to askjeeves.com. <laughs> Put in ha- Hampleton, Hampleton Bloom. Uh, Hampton Young. Just look. I have a Twitter. It's easy. It's easy. Yeah. He's very funny on Twitter. And also the whole new season of Mystery Just Science. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Please right watch. Yeah. Which is pretty awesome. Um, we we are uh, we are at probably science. You can email us probably science gmail dot com. Uh, please subscribe if you're not already a subscriber and write nice things about us on iTunes. Uh, before we um, go, can we please have a huge round of applause? Uh, firstly, to our fantastic panel for joining us here. That was awesome. Um, and also, we have a big cheer for everyone who works at the venue and at the festival as a whole because they made this whole thing happen. All the staff around here, all the volunteers. Uh, thank you, the Bridgetown staff. Thank you yourselves for joining us. Uh, I've been Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Thank you, thanks a lot, Thank guys. you very much. Have a great rest of your festival. Enjoy. <laughs>